Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 086. This could get a little rowdy. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm pretty great. I, uh, I'm i still riding pretty high from uh, my my little uh, accolade, so the, the Knives Annual 2024 on page 139 has one of my 8-inch S-Ground chef knives. So I was blown away that uh, I got my my first knife ever in a magazine slash book. So, And uh, I don't want to sound snotty when I say this, but about time. You've been uh, you've been due some <laughs> press. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, one of my favorite ones, and one of the other things that's really cool about having it be the first one in there is that's one we use almost every day. So, uh, for a while there, I was keeping like keeping every one hundred or making sure it goes to somebody that I know that won't ever get rid of it. Yeah. Um. So that's pretty cool. That's very cool. Congratulations, man. Yeah, there's a ton of really cool makers in there. Um, I'm at, like totally blown away now that I keep getting more and more involved in the community it's looking through the that book is just even more mind-blowing just knowing so many of those people that are making this stuff because looking back at some of the older ones i have no idea who most of the makers (laughs) are uh yeah slowly learning some of the history and stuff too but yeah it's really cool yeah i'm in a a rough spot where uh i don't get the uh the up-and-comer press anymore but uh i'm not uh I'm not pulling things like the really established old school guys. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm I'm in the, a, a little bit of that no man zone. Yeah. And people that are wanting to get your uh, pictures in magazines and stuff, you need to have somebody professional take your photos so they can submit them for you. So especially one of the guys that are kind of in the loop. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look through all those pictures and almost under every description, it says photo from Corey Martin photo from, um, Oh, uh, Jacqueline Frazier, uh, Sharp by Coop, uh, all those guys. So Sharp by Coop and Corey Martin are who immediately jumped to my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jocelyn Frazier did a good job at Blade Show this past year on two of mine. She's really doing some cool things. And she also does a lot of those image edits, too, which is pretty cool. Um, That's very cool. She works with you on taking some photos and then she'll do the composite uh, kind of shot. And then. Uh, submit them to the the magazines and stuff too. You know, I need to, I don't think I'm far enough along. I'll do, I need to do a work in progress. I'm rebuilding my uh, light booth at the shop. Cause uh, when the flooding happened and the, the guys were pulling everything down for me, they were not too gentle with my light booth. Mm-hmm. And I went to rebuild it and I used the little uh, diffusers that go on like four foot fluorescent light fixtures. 
when I first built it. And when I built it, those panels were like 30 bucks a piece. Now they're like a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars a piece. Whoa. So I've uh I've I've had to uh change my design a little bit. I wound up using some of the diffuser fabric uh, that uh photographers get, like they'll hang in sheets. Because mm-hmm. I could get that I think I got a seventy two by thirty six inch piece for sixteen bucks. Nice. Uh, and rather than using fluorescence, I got some inexpensive LED string lights that I could kind of wrap the whole thing in, mm-hmm. which gives me an advantage of I can change colors on it. So, you know, I can use a pure white or I can shade to blues or reds, uh, which it's ignorant as I am about photography. That little bit of lighting change has, has already made a difference. Okay. Uh, yeah. Go back and listen to that Corey Martin uh, yep. one. I, I like literally have listened to that one seven, seven or more times now. Every time I start to do a bunch of photos and stuff, I'll listen to it while I'm mowing the yard or whatever. And just little things each time click in a little bit different ways. Once you, once you start messing around with it, that tip for using the modeling clay underneath to, to tilt and hold the knife. And then I got some of those uh panels from Amazon so there was a like a silver a gold and a white and a black and you can actually like use that and move it around to uh get the the shine and stuff on your blade in a more desirable location or uh that soften uh darken areas of the the handle to make it or make it brighter on the bottom or whatever so uh, the different color panels that he talked to talked about also was one of the reasons I looked at doing the LEDs with uh, multiple different colors. Mm-hmm. Was you know kind of the same idea of using different color reflectors to get different wavelengths of light. Yeah, uh, I could do by adjusting the the colors of the LEDs. Yeah, or at least I think so. I mean, it sounds sounds like it'll work. Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, if anybody can make it work, I'm sure you can, Dan. You know, the 73rd time's the charm. <laughs> so how have you been doing? Um, man, it has been, uh, it has been truly a mixed blessing. I am, uh, I, I'm fully healthy. Uh, I'm back on the mats, get my weight back under control. I, I feel really good. Uh, I'm, I'm up to working full time. One hand, I've got ridiculous back orders that I'm having to work through. But that means I've got orders. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's frustrating working through a lot of these old orders. And in a little while, we're going to talk about some customer service stuff that I'm having to remind myself about. But, man, it is a blessing to have orders. Um, guy I played rugby with in college passed this week, which was a little hard. Um Better or worse, I'm starting to get to that age where I'm going to start losing friends. And, uh, it was, uh, I, I kind of had to sit down with my mortality for a little while today and, uh, that wasn't fun. I don't really want to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm just about back to remembering that I am going to in fact live forever and I don't have to worry about these things. <laughs> hey, beautiful. You're invincible. Yep. My lovely wife has just returned from, uh, her travels throughout the country. Nice. Hopefully she brought you some snacks. You know, I, 
she used to do a thing. I used to have T-shirts from certainly 49. I think I had T-shirts from every state in the in the union. She would get me a, a T-shirt for usually from the airport at whatever state she was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of got to, that was our thing for a little while is uh, her collecting T-shirts for me. Nice. And then the kids came along and she started bringing them treats. And, well, you'll learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you go back to your second class citizen status. <laughs> yeah. Cool. You want to talk about some of our sponsors? I do, and I am going to jump the line and talk about Ridge Runner because that ties into I was down at Georgia Bushcraft this weekend and got to see Taylor. Um, and those of you that have listened to the podcast know that I'm a, a huge fan of Taylor, especially when it comes to axes. A lot of people don't know this, but he does like the super high-end axe grinds for guys that do lumberjack competitions and that kind of thing. So when I was working on some axe projects, he was an absolute font of knowledge. And he was down there with a grinder and was doing some grinds and repping uh, Ridge Runner. Side note, uh, Ridge Runner will have the the number two and three Barracuda that I made, my new knife pattern. Mm. Uh, The number one being mine. Um, but, uh, the, the number two and number three are out of that, that first batch that I did. Okay. Uh, I'm really excited about that pattern. It's the first new pattern I've had in a couple of years. And it, uh, I have been trying for years to get kind of a, a shield shape cross section handle to work because hmm. I loved the mechanics of that handle. But when I started putting contours into it, as I like to contour my handles, I, I never could get the shape to work, and this one's kind of a break, breakthrough handle for me. So I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this new pattern. Cool. What uh, what hand material did you use on those? Uh, I used some blue flame paper micarta from Mad Max, and I used some uh, white or frost dragon. Juma. That's right, people. I got it mostly right this time. <laughs> um, although I could tell the, the three people that listened to the podcast when they saw it, they immediately called it Jumanji. <laughs> um, nice. But uh, yeah, Juma, w- uh, white Juma with black uh, liners and a, uh, a blue flame job uh, from that Mad Max paper micarta. Cool. And if somebody was wanting I, to get the that Juma, where would they uh, be able to get that? Wow, man. Great, uh, great lead in on uh, you can get Juma and numerous other high end and volume handle materials from Atlas Materials. A huge fan of the show and good friend of the show. And I have really enjoyed working with them both for the funky handle materials and when I need volume. And they tend to be able to find stuff when nobody else has got it. Uh, I just ordered a, uh, I ordered a a four by eight sheet and they were kind enough to cut it down into 12 by 12s for me uh, just to save on the the shipping. Yeah. But they've got, uh, they've got really good pricing on volume. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for stuff and you can't find it anywhere else, even for the ones and twos, 
they're a pretty good source. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to need to get uh, some of the Blue Dragon Juma stuff for a couple of builds that I'm working on. So, that should be good. I, I like the, white, the way the white, the purple, and the light blue, all of those finish out really well and really pop. You can also get uh, handle material and all sorts of other knife-making uh, supplies from Jantz Knife Supply. You can use discount code KPGRIP for 10% off their handle material there and all sorts of uh, different uh, knife-maker jigs and stuff and the best file workbook uh, on the Known planet, uh, written by me. So you can find that at Jantz Knife Supply also. Published author. Kyle Daly. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I had mentioned on the last podcast that uh, I ordered my my belts at one fifteen and got a shipped notice at three oh eight, and then uh, they arrived at my door at twelve twenty the next day. So Greg Greg needs to work on uh, how fast a shipper gets here. He needs to do some like drone delivery or something to beat that one. But uh, I live pretty yeah. close, but. Uh, was pretty pretty impressed with how quickly that got here that's pretty strong uh i've got to give them some credit some of what i ordered was back ordered and rather than sit on the order they called me several times until i finally answered the phone to go hey um do you need this right now because we can ship this part or we can wait till we have the whole order and because i'm impatient and was nearly out of belts they uh they split the order for me and didn't charge me any extra for the shipping nice very cool. Yeah, I was I was very pleased. Yeah. I, I used your name though, so that was probably it. <laughs> you can use discount code KP ten for ten percent off your order there on all of your abrasives. Uh, I bought a bunch of the uh, purple ceramic in this batch. I'm going to be doing a bunch of CPM one fifty four, and uh, that's still my my favorite belt for for doing that uh, that steel. I got I got some of the uh, the blue incinerator belts i'm gonna give them a little go and see how they do they work great on magna cut good to know because i have a disgusting amount of magna cut that i'm working on right now yeah and uh a little tip you can uh make them last even longer if you get one of those diamond wheel dressers the the cheap ones on amazon i blew my mind that uh that actually worked uh, but it's like 10 bucks on Amazon and you can uh, use that to help break some of those grains on that incinerator belt, get some more life out of it. I usually do that two or three times uh, before I can't really break the, break the grains very much for doing bevel grinding anymore. Uh, but it's, st- but once uh, even after that, like for profiling stuff, it just eats it away. No problem. Uh, I hate that you can see that I am doing this, but I'm actually making a note to, uh, to order one and give that a try. Yeah. I'll put a, I'll put a note to myself to, uh, put that in the show notes. Uh, let's see. And that brings us to, do you want to do set supply or do I get to do it? You can do it. Sweet. Um, set supply, uh, for us, by us. Uh, that is Spencer, Ed, and Todd, and they are all makers that are making maker stuff for other makers. There's a lot of maker going on there, mm-hmm. and uh, I really appreciate it, kind of like you with 
your sanding buddies and some of the other things that you do. It's nice dealing with other makers that they know the work, they know what you need, and they can provide materials with a little insight. Uh, they've done some really cool handle materials. Uh, I like some of the inlays they're doing. Uh, I have been uh, I've been testing one of their um, their knife vices. Uh, I love it. I love that it is passed through, especially for my kitchen vice. Um, I had a little feedback to them that we're not all freakishly tall like uh, Todd, and that um, maybe some adjustment on the height would help. But other than that. I, I have been really pleased with it. It's um, it's adjustable on three axes, which I don't think you see very often, and is a, a reasonable price point. Very cool. Uh, Ed uh, also got his knife in the uh, in that knives annual book, so he, oh, had a kitchen, he had a kitchen knife in there. Look at you, the the up and coming mafia. Yeah, all you chillins. <laughs> yeah. And I had a at Georgia Bushcraft this uh, this weekend. I had a really bothersome moment when I realized I was unquestionably the oldest person at the fire. And then I suddenly realized that that means I didn't have to go get firewood. <laughs> I didn't have to go get stuff. I could just look at like the young guy and go, uh, "Hey, um, would you mind?" and all of a sudden, I was not the kid at man's camp anymore. I, somehow, I've become the old man that just gets to sit around and kick the fire and ask for things. Very cool. So, again, I had to, to kind of come face-to-face with my mortality, but this time it came with a perk. <laughs> nice. I'll have to try to make it down there to one of those Georgia Bushcraft events at some point. Casey has done an absolutely amazing job i remember seven ten years ago it was 35 guys hanging out in the the woods at his grandparents farm for a weekend and i think they had 1500 people there this year wow i mean it was absolutely insane so that's two days friday and saturday or uh three days friday saturday and sunday uh and it is packed with classes. It was three days worth of classes from really knowledgeable instructors. Uh, pretty diverse vendor group. There was uh, it was more than your average number of knife makers, but it was a pretty broad selection of makers. And then it was a lot of gear companies. Um, was between two of the metal works guys that make some really cool uh, tent stoves. Hmm. Um, and then everything titanium. They had this really cool, uh, it was called a pot snare. And any pot that's got a lip on it, it was um, wire and a little cinch system with a an S hook so that it would cinch down around any pot bowl, container, anything that had a lip on it, it could cinch up and keep that centered over a fire. So even if you didn't have a bale or if you needed a, a long extension, uh, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Nice. Very, very cool. Uh, 
I haven't done a whole lot of uh, cooking like that over a fire. Usually it's just uh, have some sort of grate or put some rocks around over coals with a cast iron pan. Haven't done a whole lot of pot cooking over a fire. And I have too. And this was more of like a, a kind of a backpack scenario mm-hmm. where like if you've got something the size of a Morse pot or if you're trying to boil water in a, a steel water bottle. This was a, a super compact, lightweight thing that as long as the, the neck is flared a little bit, this will cinch up on it. And it doesn't matter if you have a bale or not. Nice. Yeah, I, I may be the proud owner of two or three of them now. <laughs> nice. Stocking stuffers. That was my justification. Yeah. Uh, and then our last sponsors, Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives. And you can find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center. And you can find Dan's knives at the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Ridge Runner Blades, like we uh, mentioned before, and Asheville Crafted Edge. And you can find my knives at Northside Cutlery with Kevin Silverman again. And uh, you can find my carbide straightening hammer at housemade.us and my sanding buddies and sanding sticks at Phoenix Abrasives. And you can find my filework book at uh, USA knife maker and Jan's knife supply. Like we mentioned earlier, uh, I'm going to bring this up at a really convenient spot to edit it out. If you want to, uh, but the water cooled quench plates, uh, mine is not nearly as elegant as the ones that, uh, that you're doing. And if you do a run of them, I'll be interested, but I just did I think 23 Magna cut blades. So I was, I was heat treating at uh, 2050 and using just one set of plates. I was able to quench all of those blades and my plates never went over 70 degrees. Hmm. It absolutely blew me away. If, if I had been doing it with conventional plates, I would have needed probably eight vices or I would have had to done multiple heat cycles because hmm. I would have had to freeze my vice, my vice or my plates back down and that would have messed up my soak times and being able to use just this one vice and keep everything cool. I could just get into a rhythm. Everything got the proper soak time and I was 21 blades, including some eight inch kitchen knives. Very cool. And that's just I me. Mean, anybody that has, uh, has done a lot of heat plate quenching plate quenching realizes how significant that is that usually you get maybe three or four knives and your plates have overheated. Yep. Or you're trying to spray them down with water and stuff like I did for a long time with my thinned plate. Yeah. I've been really happy with how, how mine have been working. I'm still, still working on how do making sure I'm doing my due diligence to make sure that, uh, everything's going to turn out good. So, uh, not quite uh, ready to, completely unveil them soon but if you guys are interested send me a message i'll get you on the list for info as it comes out yeah and it's going to be an investment because all of that machining isn't cheap but especially the guys that are looking at stepping up some production or they want to be able to do you know a day of heat treat Mm -hmm. um not overheating plates is uh well i have ruined some at the time, S35VN, 
and I was getting bad blades and we couldn't figure out what it was. And then I realized they were towards the end of my heat treat batches and the plates had overheated and they weren't quenching fast enough. Mm -hmm. So if you want to, if you're a Saturday guy and you want to be able to do 20 knives in one day, this is really the only way of doing it unless you're going to have seven or eight uh, quench plate sets. Yeah. Well, and also for MagnaCut, the uh, Laren on his uh, data sheet, they have how long at temperature for the, for the knives. And uh, you don't want them scooting. You want to be able to get them in and out as quickly as possible. So. Yeah, I think you've only got like 45 seconds. Uh, I think it's a minute. I think you've got a minute at room temperature before you start degrading the value of your your, quen- your cryo quench. Well, I'm talking about like um, time at the critical temperature. So if you put 15 blades in, you want to get those 15 blades out of the oven. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so you're not, you're not over soaking them. Mm-hmm. So all of that fun technical jargon that uh, we hashed out in the last show. Yeah, th- this will be a pleasant break from, from all you guys that were kind of like me that had to take notes and go back and look up terms and that sort of thing. That is not going to be an issue on this show. I had a couple of people message me and say, uh, uh, I feel really dumb when Laren's explaining terms with terms that I don't even know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to my life man uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, the the one thing i've got going for me is i already knew that i was dumb so i can just skip right past that shock yeah okay funny. i was ignorant i'm i'm moderately intelligent i'm just fairly ignorant we're all ignorant just in different subjects this is true and all knowledge is useless until you need it <laughs> yeah uh, you want to do our guild watch? Yeah, uh, not too much. The, uh, the South Carolina guild, uh, rather than doing a November meeting, like we have the last couple of years, I think we're going to do a January meeting and that has nothing to do with, um, me still trying to get my shop back into shape. It, it is totally about the, the convenience of the, the guild members. And we're going to stick to that. And then we've got Blade Texas coming up, which I I am I am going to make an a legitimate attempt to be there for this one this year. Yeah, I uh, I had to miss West, and I, I I want to check out Blade Texas. I haven't done one yet, and I think that's going to have a a unique feel. Yeah, I heard lots of people say that it's one of their favorite shows. So I'm going to do. Uh, do some of those modern buoy uh, interpretations I do and uh, see what happens. <laughs> Make sure you call a buoy instead of Yeah, buoy. like I said, buoy. <laughs> you want to make a Texan mad. For- you know, I, one of my favorite things about to, to piss off a Texan is uh, I'll let them go and explain about how Texan they are and I let it go for a few minutes and then I finally go, well, there are three Eastlands at the Alamo. Um, how many Jones were there? Yeah. Yep. But that gives me the double pleasure of uh, annoying the hell out of them and not giving them anywhere to go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Shout outs. Oh, uh, I got a long list. I'm sorry. 
go ahead and throw out uh, Bald Man Knife and Tool. Uh, I think we've reposted his uh, sandpaper organizer system, but I think it's worthy of a, a shout out. Uh, I'm doing something similar, but as I transition more to shop rolls and away from sheet goods, uh, especially the the tear off with the hacksaw blade like he did, but uh, I'm modifying it for rolls. But I really thought that was a cool setup. Yeah. Yet the, those tackle boxes are a great way to keep your sandpaper organized. Uh, I, uh, for a long time, I've been using an old um, like silverware drawer divider. The other thing that I have done is the, the edge, uh, edge guards. I think you can get them from Jantz. Uh, I think they also knife maker supply, but they're the little cardboard folders mm-hmm. um i will put the different grits in different one of those and it just protects the grits or protects the strips of sandpaper so that i don't get contamination on them okay uh, so i can cut them into the little strips and then i just slide them into those folders mm. um not as cool as the tackle boxes but just a another direction to go yeah these are the the like tackle box inserts that we're talking about so like if you're putting lures or things in uh they're like anywhere from an inch to two and a half maybe three inches tall so huge is what i'm hearing yeah so you can uh put your paper in there uh i'll try to put some of the the model numbers of stuff i use i really like using that for a bunch of my things i use it for my two inch sanding discs the quick change sanding discs that i use with my little right angle die grinder and uh, like my die maker stones and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then I was at Georgia Bushcraft this weekend. So the shout out list is going to be a little long and a little incomplete. And I apologize for that. But those of you there realized I wasn't sober the entire time. So I hope you will be a little understanding and forgiving if um, I spent a lot of time hanging out with you and I didn't mention it. It also could be because you saw me doing something embarrassing and I'm not going to acknowledge it. But I'm going to start out with uh, Mark Hopper and Jessica, who we will be having on the show soon. And I took a little perverse pleasure in having people introduce me to Mark, not knowing that he is the individual that got me into knife making and has thus ruined my life. (laughs) But uh uh, Mark Hopper's with uh, Goat and Hammer and is a, a skilled smith, not just knife maker, but smith. Beyond my description, but I had the pleasure of working with him when we both lived in Podunk, North Georgia. And he is, in fact, the one that uh, I made my first knife with. And his, I guess she, I mean... She certainly was an apprentice, but her skill sets at this point, I think, are are well beyond apprentice. But uh, Jessica, who is a fascinating woman, up to and including, she's also a licensed falconer. Hmm. Um, And we will have both of them, um, I believe, I think Mark won Forged in Fire by himself, and then he and Jessica won the, the... mentor apprentice challenge as well. Um, 
so that that is probably going to be a long interesting episode that I will need you to edit out some clearly false news stories that the two of them may or may not have about me. <laughs> but uh I think I'm going to go down and check out their new shop. They had uh the Goat and Hammer in downtown Atlanta, which was this massive they were in this massive old railroad building that had a goat farm on the roof of it. Um that has now fallen to gentrification and Mark is building a new, I think complex is a legitimate description for his classes as well as his own work. So I'm going to go down there and check that out. And for some of you, uh, arcane hammer swingers, uh, we are going to have a podcast all about y'all coming up. Very cool. Um, if you guys haven't checked out the goat and hammer Instagram, him and Jessica, um, did a bunch of really good like series uh, where they would go through and talk about a different aspect of forging and stuff. Lots of really good info there. Yeah. Um, and they clearly do so much more than knives. So their, their forging knowledge is, is well worth your time. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, Say hey to Kevin, uh, Estella, and Gary. It was good to see those guys again. They had been down at the undisclosed location in South Carolina teaching a uh, an outdoor survival class a couple of weeks ago. It was good to catch back up with them. And uh, Ruben from Essie, who he is a, well, he works with Essie. He, I guess he'd be an influencer and a world traveler, but he's a very phenomenal writer. And I really respect his reviews. He will keep knives for six months, a year before he review writes the review. He legitimately uses them in multiple conditions, different ways over time. He's not one of these unboxing and a few words reviewers. Like if he's reviewed something, he has used it for a significant amount of time in different environments. Uh, Really, clearly I have a lot to say about his reviews, but it's still not enough. He is a truly phenomenal reviewer. Um, Got to see the whole SE crew. It was great to see those guys. Um, Truly phenomenal human beings, and I always enjoy hanging out with them. Uh, Glenn was kind enough to, to bring me some jams and jellies and some of the the finest of uh, sweets from his kitchen, which I greatly appreciated. Um, got to see Exodus Knives. Uh, already mentioned uh, Taylor from Ridge Runner, but guy like him is worth two shout outs. Uh, Mikhail from VanQuest. Uh, man, I did not recognize that dude. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. He has clearly been, uh, been touring Europe. Um, I think he may be competition for Ethan for the most interesting man in the world. Hmm. I mean, he still needs a, another 40 or 50 years of experience to get to Ethan's level, but I I could certainly see him as, as competition. The one, the only uh, Joe Flowers. Um, it was great seeing him. A uh, little hard to keep up. I had to take a few rests, but great to see him. Mentioned the guys from uh, Metalworks already. Um, 
both their their stoves, uh, everything titanium they had from tweezers and spoons and the pot snares. Um, his wife, uh, I couldn't help it. I got a, I think they called it a toque, but to the rest of us, it's a wall cap, a watch cap or a beanie. Um, she was knitting those on the, on the spot and I couldn't help myself. I had to get one, uh, chef, uh, chef up was there. Uh, he reps for a company importing a lot of, uh, Chinese style kitchen cutlery. And, uh, I want to thank him for the, the magnetic, uh, knife rack that he gave me, which I repur- prefer those, prefer those to blocks or drawer insorts. Um, his have got a little thin piece of wood over the magnet so that you don't get scratched up blades. And it's just a wall mounted magnet. Um, I use them tip down, handle up because even if the knife is a little heavy, uh, it, the handle will catch at the top at the, the shoulder of the handle and it'll hold it in place. So I now use nothing but magnetic wall racks for all the knives in my kitchen with the added benefit of it's like an art installation. Yeah. I mean, you have beautiful kitchen knives. You, you should have them on display. Yeah. We, we just don't have enough wall space with all the cabinets in our kitchen. I may or may not have mounted some to the side of the cabinets when Beth was out of town. <laughs> and once the holes are in the cabinet, there's nothing you can do, right? I guess so. <laughs> um, and, um, first of my mid tech and production blades have come in. Uh, I'm really pleased, really, really pleased. Um, they're S35VN, some of them are Echo 5s, some of them are kitchen knives, and some of them are something new that y'all will be hearing about in the, the next month or so, uh, a new production option from Dogwood. A um, couple lessons here. Uh, I, I have found a, it looks like I have found a all U.S. source, all U.S. production OEM company that I am really pleased with. Um, we'd had a, a, a few issues and they had warned me early on, Hey, look, you're the first one run we've done. There's going to be a little bit of growing pains here and a little bit of life lesson guys. I justifiably could have been, I could have been an ass. Uh, there were some delays, some things going on. Um, Somehow my better angel was, was louder that day. And I, I went with patience instead of, um, being a little bit of an ass and, and venting my frustrations on somebody. And it's a good thing because I found out that they had had some, some family crisis and hadn't been in work. And that's why some of the communication had broken down. And once they were back at work full time, Man, it was gangbusters. Great communication. The product was getting out. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to to giving you all the heads up. Right now, the deal is they want to get a couple of runs with a couple of other people under their belts before they really go public with with what they're doing. Um, so 
one hand, I'm really looking forward to to singing their praises, and the other hand, little lesson, guys, you never know what people are going through. You can always be an ass. Like, it is easy to go from understanding to ass. It is really hard to go from ass back to understanding. This is one of those life lessons where a little bit of patience and it turns out that I was right to have faith in some people and I I really could have been an unpleasant person from my side, perfectly justifiably. But another situation where a little patience and understanding really won out, won out for me in the end. Good. Um, whew, that's a lot of shot. I mean, that's almost an entire show's worth of talking for me. <laughs> I had one I'm shout out, uh, Chris Crawford. He had a pinhead spinning fixture that I bought. Uh, he just shipped out today. Um, but yeah, it spins, uh, three thirty seconds and 16th inch pins. I think it is, which are the kind of the most common size for a lot of the slip joint stuff. And that gives them that nice, clean kind of dome look when they mm-hmm. uh, they peen pins. Yeah, like where, especially when you use it on like stag or rough jigged um, handle materials, uh, you can use that head spinning to once you kind of peen it to uh, round over that top. Very cool. So I'm excited to use that. Uh, Jason Ritchie, uh, one of the guys that makes Ooh, some. Does this mean there's some KH Daily folders in the working? uh but i mean i've been talking Should about them for like that? six years so <laughs> yeah well i mean i i talk about a lot of stuff is i mean if you're buying gear does this mean maybe you know, it's, it's definitely on the want to do list okay so, um but yeah it hasn't happened yet but uh jason Ritchie was telling me that uh he loved his set from chris and chris hadn't made them in like a long time and uh he posted it the other day and i said send me one of those so uh got lots of different tools i've known uh one of the things i've learned is when you see really well-made tools like that try to get them while you can because guys don't decide to make them forever so um guys don't decide to make them forever and they get to be a pain and if you're lucky, it's a once a year batch. So yeah. Want to give Chris a shout out and hopefully we can get him on the, the show to talk about his stuff. He, he does a lot of uh, educational DVDs and stuff too. Mm-hmm. I own a few of them. They're really well done. So uh, if you guys are wanting to step up your game in certain aspects, there's stuff about folders there's stuff about slip joints. There's uh, there's forging with Jason Knight, I think. Uh, I think there's a Steve Schwartzer one, someone with Luke, Luke Swenson and stuff like that. So uh, lots of lots of top tier people in the video. You know what? I am going to pass his name along to our show booker and uh, and let them know to, to go ahead and get him on the show. Yeah. That sounds professional, doesn't it? Yeah. That sounds like some Hollywood stuff right there. <laughs> I'll have my people get in touch with your people. Yep. All right. So what some of y'all may or may not know is here recently, we've been doing the interview first, uh, mainly so our guest doesn't have to sit through the 30, 43 minutes of, of introduction that 
you good people have listened to, and I do appreciate it. Our sponsors look at that kind of stuff, and I appreciate you just not fast-forwarding through everything. Um, but that means that you tend to get a nice, fresh interview, and then we do the intro stuff when it doesn't too much matter. But, you know, we're back to the old pattern because it, you'll understand the guest in a minute. But just a heads up, uh, I've had a rough day. I may or may not be. Mm, half-ish a bottle of vodka into this. So you are going to get the passionate, mostly filtered, because we got to keep the PG-17, and Kyle does the editing. But we're going to jump into it. All right, guys, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you right up front. Putting the word kitchen in the name doesn't make it a freaking kitchen knife. All right? Yeah, I, I this is a little bit of a hot topic for me because I spent two and a half freaking years working with chefs to relearn how to make a kitchen knife. And it may annoy me when some of, hey, I came out of the bushcrafting outdoor community. That's how I mentored. That's where I got my start. But I might be a little irritated with some of these guys that, or just making their bushcraft knives and throwing the word kitchen on it. And uh, uh, apart from the disservice that you're doing to the rest of the industry, that somebody is going to buy your knife thinking it is a kitchen knife and it's not. And then you've hurt your own brand and you've hurt the rest of ours brand. And I put a lot of freaking effort into learning how to make kitchen knives so I got a little bit of a, a, a hot spot on this. Um, I'll go ahead and tell y'all a little bit of a story on how we got to this. I may or may not have been in the bathroom scanning through Instagram as, as, as a healthy male does. You know, it's the, the one time of the day that you get a few moments to yourself. And I noticed um, somebody had taken and it was beautifully made. Beautifully made. Somewhere between a machete and a camp knife and throw the word kitchen on it and said kitchen chopper. Um, I've been in a lot of kitchens all over the world, even Argentina. I've never seen a freaking machete in a kitchen. And you want to know why? Because it's a crappy kitchen knife. I get that you need to sell your knives. And I get that the kitchen stuff is becoming popular. And I'm going to check myself here for a minute because changing established patterns, moving outside of the accepted norm. I mean, that's how we get innovation. That's how we find new things. That's how we break new ground. But dude, if you're going to make some changes, at least know why you're making those changes. Um, do your research beyond your geometry, your metallurgy, I mean, study the use. If, if you're going to make a chopper, understand why traditionally kitchen choppers are either a butcher's ax or a cleaver. 
and understand why those patterns exist and then understand why a freaking machete is not a kitchen chopper. I'm not saying that your kitchen chopper's got to look like a machete or a, uh, I'm sorry, like a, uh, a cleaver. I mean, that's a, an established pattern that's been around for thousands of years. There's probably a reason for that. But innovate. Go in new directions. But do it, do it intelligently. Do it with some education. And, and here in a minute, I'll, I'll talk about some places to, to find that education and some things that you want to look for. But um, unique doesn't mean useful. And, man, don't be lazy. Don't throw a bud, buzzword into your name to try and sell a knife that's not fit for that purpose. Um, feel free to jump in, Kyle. Otherwise, I'm just going to go on a, a, a full-on, like, <laughs> early show three or four obscenity-ridden uh, tirade. Yeah, Dan Dan sent me a picture, and it was like, Dan's in Reddit. This can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he uh, had the... Lots of the the established patterns, like he said, uh, some places to to kind of go look at look for some of the stuff like that. Uh, the Murray Carter 101 Knife Design book is really good for a lot of the Japanese pattern stuff. Um, those are all really good places to start. Pretty much any kitchen knife should not be bigger than a quarter of an inch, even if it's a cleaver. Um, Lots of I'll go one further and say not thicker than an eighth of an inch. Well, yeah, but I mean, lots of cleavers are three sixteenths or a quarter of an inch if they're the top chopping through bones and stuff. But we've seen lots of people doing like quarter inch thick, like chef knives and stuff like that. So, um, that's yeah, not that's not a chef's to. knife. That's a wedge. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, I will pull out a couple of the, um, the skills books that I have, the kitchen skills book. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot that I was doing wrong and I did a lot of cooking. Man, if you want to do some reverse engineering or if you want to to design from the ground up, um, some of these kitchen skills books, learn how what work the knife is intended to do. And then you can start from there and reverse engineer and maybe you'll come out somewhere different than the established norm or take the established norm and then look at the work it does. And maybe you can find something new, but just don't throw buzzwords in your name. You're going to hurt your brand. You're going to hurt the brand of the custom knife industry and in general and you're gonna piss off guys like me that are gonna come looking for you that spent years studying what it is to be a kitchen knife to make a good kitchen knife um mostly because and i'm this is a craft you know we Cutco, you know, all they care about is pushing product. We're not Cutco. We're handmade. Part of being handmade is, man, 
you put the time. So you studied the metallurgy, which you should. You studied the blade geometry, which you should. You studied handle shape, the, the, the neutral position of a hand and how your handle should be shaped. Man, finish that education. Don't stop short. Learn about um, the leverage that is produced, the interaction of curvature to the, your handle to your blade. Um, understand balance, when you need to be tip heavy, when you need to be handle heavy. Look at how the knife is being used. Look at proper grip techniques. Man, a, a lot of heavy chapping blades, you know, you've got a a thumb over grip or a, an ice pick hammer style grip. That's not what's used in the kitchen. A, a, a few of, you know, some very good cooks, some some untrained grandmotherly will will still use those grips. But even those people, because of the food network blowing up, because of some other uh, educational opportunities, have learned to go to a pinch grip. Um, look at the cuts that are being made. I mean, this is a chance for you to, to be an expert in a field. Don't cheap out and throw buzzwords in your name just to sell some piece of crap. And or if you don't know, don't stop there. You know, if you don't know, man, find knowledgeable users, find executive chefs. I, like I said, go to some of the kitchen skills books. Put the time in to learn what that tool needs to be. I, and I'm not going to bust people's stones about going to new shapes because, again, that's how innovation comes. Uh, and sometimes you're going to try a new shape and it's a failure. And you may try a new shape and it works. I'm going to throw back on, especially in the kitchen world, blade shapes that have been around for literal thousands of years. There's a reason for that. Now, you might be able to make them thinner, lighter, sharper, apply new materials, cool new finishes. All of that is true. But a lot of those shapes have been around and I hear myself, I sound like a champion of the old guard, which I have never been. I have really taken a lot of pleasure in and made my name on pushing the limits on materials and doing new things. But don't ignore your history. And, you know, unique doesn't mean useful. Like, don't change stuff up just to have changed it. If you're going to change something, have a logical, educated reason to change it. This, guys, this is a craft. This, this is a calling. This is an art. We are not Walmart Inc. We're not pushing mediocre crap to the masses because that's got the best price point and some schmuck will buy it. We're working handmade. We're working small batches here. I mean, even our even mid tech is small batch. Put the time in. 
build a quality working tool. Um, and, and I'm going to step back for a minute because I might have gotten a little passionate. That's um, fine. Uh, feel free to jump in, Kyle. No, you're doing a great job. All right. Um, well, I'm going to slip from that to uh, prototype is not a production knife, guys. I make prototypes. I make an embarrassing number of patterns before I go to production. Um, in some ways, I am very fortunate to use the example of the, the kitchen industry because I have some really phenomenal chefs that product test for me. And part of what makes them phenomenal is they're using knives 50, 60 hours a week. And I have found guys that can communicate. Um, they can communicate their knowledge. Like I have worked with chefs that have just said that knife's crap, but they can't tell me why it's crap. I have found some chefs that have the technical knowledge to judge the value of a tool, but can communicate what it is about the tool that is good and bad. So yeah, on one hand, I'm lucky to have found those guys. On the other hand, I found those guys because I got out there and hit the streets and bought drinks for chefs and asked them to test knives for me. You know, I, I did the lead work, leg work. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk about how many guys blew me off, didn't want to talk to me. Um, how many guys could give me unusable information like, this is great, this is shit, but couldn't tell me why they it was either of those things. They couldn't explain to me what knife techniques they've used. It It took me years to build these contacts. So on one hand, yeah, I'm lucky to have these guys. But it didn't just happen. Um, you know, I get you're making knives. You want to sell knives. You want to get them to people. Um, and we're going to kind of split this conversation in two ways. One, have a proven tool before you come to the market. I, man, it, those first couple of knives, if you want to give them away to friends, family, prospects, get some feedback, develop a knowledge base. Try to keep your first one. Oh, always keep your first knife. Yeah. Um, or if you want to start reproducing really proven patterns, that's another direction to go because all the R&D has been handled. The other thing to keep in mind is uh, I see guys, I look at their table and no two knives are the same. And if that's intentional, if you made one of every pattern, that's fine. But I want y'all to think about if you can't make two knives that are functionally the same, making two perfectly identical knives, that's, that's master level skill. Like I, I acknowledge that even I would struggle to make two perfectly identical knives, but two functionally identical knives is, is that's a different point. And if you can't work with intentionality, 
if you can't intentionally make a repeatable pattern, a repeatable grind, I would suggest that maybe you need to to sit down and talk to yourself and see if you're really ready to be selling your knives yet. I would suggest that perhaps you've still got some work to do on on the practice side of things. You, you need to be able to work with intentionality. You know, the the shape needs to be the shape that you intended it to be, not the accident that it became. Not because that accident may not be a great knife, but because you need to be able to re- reproduce that. Like if you're going to be something other than a guy that makes knives, when somebody says, hey, I love that knife, I want another one, you need to be able to make it. And if you're not there yet, then consider that maybe you're in a position where you're giving knives to friends and family, you know, that sort of thing. You're still honing your skills. We've all been there. I've been there. Uh, in my apprenticeship days, I made some really cool knives that I then ruined three, four, five feet of steel trying to make that knife again. You need to be able to work with intentionality. You need to be able to make the same knife over and over. If you're not there, then I would suggest that perhaps maybe you're not ready to be somebody that's selling knives. Um, Some of this is a personal peeve. Some of this is giving you a little coaching because as soon as you start selling, you're making your brand. Um, As soon as you're putting marks on blades, that's your history. Somebody is going to see that knife. Somebody's going to be asked for another one. If you can't deliver, that's going to be on you. So some of this is, yeah, maintaining a standard and, and, and being a little frustrated. But some of this is also legitimate advice on what it's going to take to make the move from hobbyist to knife maker. Which kind of brings us into uh, into kind of the business side of things. And again, Kyle, feel feel free to jump in as I get on my tirades. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I, I got a little built up frustration here, guys. So like I said, we don't really know where this is going to go. We've got some show notes, but we got no guest. Um, Kyle has given me a a pretty free reign now that I I seem to have gotten some of my obscenities under control. (laughs) So, uh, so I'm going to run with it. Um, And I, I had the same concept when I got started that a lot of people do. I mean, you always heard it, you know, build a better mousetrap and, you know, the world will, will beat a path to your door. Sorry guys, that's bullshit. Um, I won't tell you right now. You can make the best of whatever it is that you make. And if it's not marketable, if people don't know about it, if you don't have a mechanism to get word out about it, you're going to go broke. Uh, I'm jumping the line a little bit here, but I'm going to tell y'all 
Yeah, I, I did my apprenticeship in kind of the heyday of of the bushcraft world when an eighth of an inch was considered a thin blade and people were doing five thirty seconds and a quarter inch was not unusual. Being an engineering student, having come from outside of the industry, I did the math and everything told me that thin spines and high grinds were just they cut better. That was a more efficient blade. As long as you didn't exceed the the physical capabilities of your steel, that was a better blade. And I remember just before I went out on my own, um, Andy and Dylan sat me down. Like, look, dude, we get it. You know, the math works. We agree that these are these are better blades, but you're gonna go out of business. Nobody understands this. Everybody wants thick blades. You're making something that that there's no market for. And in some ways, they were right. I mean, I I almost went out of business. Um, if I didn't have kind of a, a, a stay-at-home dad situation where I could weather a few rough storms, I would have gone out of business. Um, I have gotten kind of fortunate that as the knife community got more educated and understood things that, that these thin blades have, have been more acceptable, but you can make the best knife in the world. And if nobody understands it, if it doesn't look like a knife, if it's not marketable, you're going to be a dude that's making knives. You're not going to be a knife maker because a knife maker has got to be able to sell their product. So, I mean, temper some of your, I'm going to reinvent the wheel, but better. I'm going to make the best knife ever with, you got to be able to sell it. Um, this kind of dovetails into the, the my next rant that is, if you have got an eye towards designing for larger companies, and man, that is a, that's what I was kind of angling for. That is a great position to be in. If you can, if you can sell some designs to a larger company and have that as kind of your mailbox money and make your custom world, either your high end gravy or your R and D environment. <clears throat> that, that was my fantasy. Like, that's a great position to be in. But there's a couple of cold, hard truths that you need to know. Most of those big companies don't really care if it's a great knife. They want it to be marketable. Um, and when you talk about marketable, sellable, um, what these companies do care about, and I'm, I don't want to be too cold. I mean, clearly they want their product to be good enough that it's got a generational life. You know, they, they don't want to be stuck with a Jessica X that they spent a whole bunch of money on. And then it turned out to be crap. I mean, they, they want functional, useful knives, but what they want more than that is a highly sellable widget. Cause at the end of the day, it, a lot of these guys, I mean, it's, it, 
it's a business. It's a company. It's not a passion the way it is for a lot of us. So what do these companies care about? Um, will it be easy to sell or market? Uh, if your pattern, if your shape needs a lot of explanation, if the sales force has to get out there and explain to people why this is good, it may be the better, better mousetrap. It may be that, that that shape, that pattern truly is better. But that effort of trying to explain to people why it is better, the educated salesman, sales force that they need to, to educate the buyers, that's expensive and they don't want the hassle. They're looking for something that everybody can clearly see, hey, that's obvious what its purpose is and I see what its purpose is and that's cool. The advantage of being the small-time maker is you can look at taking on that challenge. But if you're, if you're looking to get, to get signed on by the bigger companies, they want something simple and obvious. Um, if it's radically new and they've got to build a market behind it, they've got no interest in that. Now, once you've built the market, once you've put the effort into it and there's a market there, they might be interested. Downside is they might also be interested in the guy that's just mimicking you three years after you built the market. You know, the, the, that's a dice roll, but they don't want something so new that they have to build the market because that takes time and money and that cuts into the profit line. Um, they're also looking for guys that have done the marketing for them. You know, you've built your brand, you've built your name. So now they, all they've got to do is widget company X is proud to produce so-and-so's brand. Um, that's an building a brand as a whole that's an entire episode, if not a series of episodes in there of themselves. But don't expect a good design to be all you need to get in with these companies. You may also need a brand. You may have also needed to do the ground floor marketing for them already. Um, that may not be fair, but they've got a whole industry full of people that are doing all of that work for them that they can choose from. So, you know, if, if you want to get signed on by the company, that is, that's some of the groundwork that you may have to look at doing. Um, and they're going to want something that there is a 2.0 version of. The easiest marketing in the world is new. So yeah, it's got to be good enough that it's residual, that that, that pattern is going to be bought over and over. But they're going to want new. They're going to want to be able to go to SHOT Show or Blade Show and splash new and improved all over the place. That's simple, cheap marketing. Um, and, and that works at every level. 
us um us small guys that's that's also going to work for you that's why some makers wind up with hundreds of patterns it's because each year at blade show easiest marketing in the world is new and improved so you may need to keep in the back of your mind okay this is pattern step one this is pattern 1.5 this is going to be pattern two and be able to pitch hey this is going to be the progression this is how we're going to get people to rebuy this pattern over and over um and then what's their profit margin going to be how much does it cost to make you may have designed the single best cutting tool in the world, but if it is excessively expensive to manufacture, they're not going to be interested because that's going to be an excessively expensive MSRP. Um, you know, manufactured suggestive price, suggested price, retail price, retail. Thank you, retail price. There was an extra letter in there. Um, and there are certain price points that people are willing to open their wallet on and price points that they close it. It's psychology. It is what it is. And if you're super phenomenal, solves all the problem in the world, pattern is expensive to produce, they're going to be less interested in it. Um, and then that takes it to how much can they sell it for? Is there something about your pattern that is new, better, that can justify a higher price? Because back to these big companies, man, they, they're all about the profit margin. And I, there is probably a little bitterness in my voice because yeah, I want there to be room for the better mousetrap, but I don't really fault them. I mean, when you start talking about big companies with tens, hundreds, or thousands of employees, you've got a responsibility to employees, shareholders, etc. Like your your goal is not to elevate the industry with the finest product. Your goal is to make a profit so that you can then pay the salaries of all of these people and do that year after year after year. Um, so please don't think that I am, I am bashing these larger companies. I'm just trying to give you a, a realistic expectation of if that's the direction you want to go, then kind of like the old, do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? These are some compromises that you need to be prepared to make. Um, And then we've talked a little bit about it of it doesn't need to be great. It needs to be marketable, but it does need to be good enough that it doesn't damage a reputation and that it's going to have some residual buying. You know, two years from now when they're pitching the, the shiny new super lock, whatever, your design still needs to be stable enough that that they're getting residuals off of it, that, 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 that pattern is still moving on a personal stance for me in the outdoor community. It's 
my Echo 5. Um, I believe it's one of the last knives I, I designed while I was still an apprentice. And I'm, I'm 15 years into my career, and it is still my best-selling outdoor knife. Um, I'm biased enough to think that there's some very good reasons for that. But you need, in addition to everything that I just talked about, about the flash, the marketability, the newness, it, it, it is still going to need to have some residual, or you're going to be the flash in the pan. They're going to pick up one design. They're going to invest some marketing into you. And if you drop off on year two, you're going to have a hard time selling that next pattern. Um, and then we're going to talk about some design fees. Um, I, I've i heard about some highway robbery. Um, I have heard about some guys really getting taken advantage of. Now, granted... That first pattern, you know, that first time that somebody's taking a chance on you, um, maybe you give them a little bit of a sweetheart deal because, I mean, they they need some extra honey. They need a, a, a little something for that company to be willing to invest in you, to make that capital investment. But truthfully, guys, I'm going to tell you this. Right now, you should be getting somewhere between three and six percent off the top for your designs. Um, I've dealt with some companies that offered me one co company offered me a five hundred dollar flat fee uh, to use my pattern for all of eternity. Um, I was desperate. I really wanted to be a maker with a company. But fortunately, I didn't take that deal because that was a sucker deal. They wanted to be able to make my pattern forever and pay me 500 bucks once. Um, you know, you're new to the business. You're going to have to make some compromises, especially if you're signing on to some people that have got a lot of resources. But in return for that, get it in writing. What are they going to do to market you? Yeah, they're going to market what you've made for them. They're going to market their brand. What are they going to do for you? You know, are they going to market it as... The Jayhawk 5000, the Cutterator from designed by Bob Smith, our new in-house wonder boy. Or, or is it going to be the Cutterator 5000? We'll see how it goes. Um, three to five, three to 6% off the top. That's, that's industry standard. If people are coming at you with some other options, you know, you're arguably an adult. You can decide how much money you want to leave on the table. Um, if you want to leave some money on the table on that first pattern, because they're willing to end writing. And man, I have loved that this industry has been a handshake industry for so long. 
And I don't want to stop that. I want to continue to be an industry of honor where your word has value. But when you come down to working with some of these bigger companies, um, getting it in writing isn't necessarily so my lawyer can beat up your lawyer. Getting it in writing can just be so that when there's any confusion on who's supposed to do what, you can go back to what you agreed on. You know, you can go, hey, y'all should be doing, oh, wait, no, that's not what you agreed to. I realize. Get it in writing. And um, I mean, you you do what you want. But the majority of designers are getting three to six percent off the top. And that off the top is important. Anything you want to throw in there, Kyle? I, I don't have much experience working with companies, so I don't I have much I, to add. I, I have very little experience um, because as most of y'all can do a little Google and realize at the time of this recording, I haven't been picked up by anybody, but uh, I have had a, a, a few negotiations and I've worked with some guys in the industry that are established. So I feel pretty confident um, and be hesitant to sell yourself cheap. Some of these bigger companies have, um, they've enjoyed stroking people's egos about, oh yeah, but you're now with us. You're designing in the big time. Well, uh, you know how much you can eat off of your ego? Um, so a little something to keep keep in the back of your mind, and that's going to fade. Hey, if you're a hobby guy with no overhead and some ego and being invited to a few shows, it, that's going to feed you. I love that you're in that position, but don't sell yourself cheap. Just because you, I mean, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. You're probably going to be hearing that from me a lot. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, don't let them take advantage of you. Um, while we're talking about hobby guys, I'm going to talk to you all a little bit. Um, even as recently as a couple of years ago, I've had some guys come around the booth at Blade Show and, and give me a little hard time about my pricing that's a little too low. And a lot of that was a combination of confidence in my work and a fairly new name and the whole, you know, one in the hand is worth two in the bush. But guys, we, we need to watch out for each other in the industry, especially the makers. Um, a lot of the manufacturers and some of the dealers they got plenty of people looking out for them. They're looking out for each other. Um, we got to look out for us. You hobby guys that, uh, that you've got low overhead. God love you. That means you should be making a killing. Rather than cut your own throat and drop your prices just to cover your cost which I get you're doing it for the pure pleasure of making. And that is a beautiful thing that 
that's where I got started. Um, if you ever lose that pleasure of making, maybe you should consider that, that you've run your course and this isn't the industry for you. But the flip side of it is your work, your skill, your knowledge, your time, all of those things have value. And if you're fortunate enough that you've got low overhead, that just means you've got a sweet, sweet profit margin. Um, you know, quit worrying about um, just covering your cost. Um, you know, and in the early days, you're worried about, I can't sell anything. That that doesn't mean to be your concern. That's the great thing about having really low overhead is it can take you a while to sell stuff and you're going to be okay. And when you do sell it, you're going to have that, that sweet, sweet profit margin where I'm trying to make 25% because I've got insurance and rent payments. You might be making a 30, 40% margin. Man, take that money. Don't slit your own throat. Don't leave a, a pile of money on the table for the dealer to take. And look out for you. And in the same process, looking out for your other makers. Um, feel free to jump in, Kyle. I think also if you've lost your passion and stuff for what you're making... Uh, don't be afraid to take a step back and uh, reevaluate something I've had to do quite a bit with different things over the years, things that I got uh, passionate about and then kind of lost the passion and then had to reevaluate. And I still do some of those things, but do it more as a enjoyment than something to make money at. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've said it on here before. The best way to ruin a hobby is to do it for money. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you lose your passion, go back to why were you doing this originally? You know, um, we've also talked about this from time to time, but if you're getting in this to make money, you need to go do something else. Um, there's not a lot of money in knife making. You need to... You need to love just making. And if you love making, there is a good chance that you will put effort, enough effort into being good at making. And then you might make a little money. Uh, and the knife making industry, especially now that the grinders have gotten inexpensive relatively. Um, the quality is so high on them, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it's now gone from there's two or three grinder manufacturers to there's a bunch. Um, and with YouTube and videos and that sort of thing, there's, there's a font of knowledge. There's a lot of people getting into it, but it, it's kind of like football. So for every high school football player that makes it to college, 
it's what, one in a thousand, one in 10,000. And then you get to college. And for every college player that makes it to the NFL, you're now one in every 10,000. And then once you get to the NFL, the vast majority are making league minimum. They're paying their bills. They're doing all right. But there's not a lot of zeros in their paychecks. And then you get you get the superstars, the first round draft picks that are making the the tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. And those guys, those guys are the lure. You know, the freshman kid walking out on the football field sees flavor of the day professional athlete that just signed a an eighty million, a hundred and twenty million dollar contract, and he thinks I could be that guy. That's in a lot of ways, that's the knife industry nowadays. Um every guy that turn for every guy that turns on a grinder, there's a tenth, a hundredth of a percent of a guy that makes lead mega minimum that does all right. All in the chase of the fraction of a fraction of a percent of the guy that is actually making big money. And you could be that guy, but if you're doing it for the money, if you're just chasing the money percentage wise, knife making is a sucker bet. You have got to love the making. You've got to love it enough to do the research to do the book work, to go out and interview users. You got to go to sleep thinking about, or you got to go to sleep reading about knives. You got to wake up thinking about knives. Uh, that's what it's going to take to make it more than a hobby. And if it's just a hobby, God love you. Man, spend the rest of your life being happy that you've got something that you enjoy. Because I promise you, no matter how expensive knife making is, it's cheaper than hookers and blow. <laughs> um, you know, you should be happy. Your spouse should be happy. But if you're thinking of making that that jump to the next level, man, you got to do it because you love it. Don't do it for the money because statistically the money's not going to be there. Yep. Um, it's a lot of work to get that money, too. And I know on a podcast um, geared towards guys that want to make knives and become makers, it, discouraging a lot of my audience from doing what it is. And, you know, when we lose two of our seven listeners, that's that's going to be kind of a hit. But, guys, this is an episode of um, we're going to tell you the stuff that nobody really wants to tell you. And that's that's just a cold, hard truth you're probably not going to make money at this. And if you're okay with that, then there's a chance that you're going to be a good maker. You may even be a great maker, um, but you got to work for the passion of it, man. Mm -hmm. Which kind of brings us into, um, if you want to, um, if you want to make a business out of this, the making that's the easy part. That's the small part. 
running dogwood custom knives, the easiest thing I do every day is pull grinds. That's the easiest part of running my business. Um, if you're thinking about moving to make it a business, stop. Stop right now. Check your junior college. Check some online options. Because um, this, to be a business, it is more about the selling than the making. Um, you know, I had this naive concept of make a really great product and sell it for more than it cost me to make it. That's business. There is so much more to it, man. Um, get, get some accounting classes. Um, I mean, I had my seventh grade. This is how to, to fill out a, a single entry, um, register. You need to go a little beyond that. Get some basic accounting. Get some small business management organization. Right now, you're just one person. But you need to lay in your infrastructure like you're going to be bigger than that. You have to do it in small bites. But it is important to know how businesses are layered, how they're managed. Um how you need to organize your time between what I, because I'm food industry focused, front of house, back of house, um, office workshop. You need to understand how those two work together and how both are equally necessary. You need to schedule for that. You need to know what your legal requirements are, both to do production and to do business in your area. Um, and marketing, we've, we've touched base on this. You've heard me say it before, but it is better to have a mediocre product and phenomenal marketing than a phenomenal product and mediocre marketing. If no one's heard of your product, if no one understands why they should use it, if no one's willing to pick it up and give it a try, it doesn't matter how good it is. You're going to go broke. Um, time management, that is going to be a vital skill. I, I, man, I spent a lot of my life doing 70 hour weeks, you know, working 14 hour days and I was producing a lot, but I had really poor management. The time management, my organization, if I had been more efficient, I could have gotten that same amount of work done and not been cost, constantly exhausted and broken down and at the shop and not where I wanted to be. So, I mean, I'm from the generation that if you just work hard enough, you'll succeed. And I can throw work at stuff like a mother but I'm getting to an age to realize that I worked harder when I could have worked smarter. Um, and some of that may be batching work um, for a lot of outdoor knives that, that five to seven inch blade range 
five, for whatever reason, five knives tends to be the magic number. Working in batches of five is a really efficient number. Um, when I start to get to like eight inch blades, 10 inch blades, kitchen blades, those numbers can come down to like three for little knives, like pairing knives, that number may go up to seven, but there's some, some scale of economy and some efficiency there. And you need to not only find it, but understand why you're there. Um, you need to be able to track your cost. This was a huge thing for me because I was buying from multiple different dealers and prices would vary, if not week to week, at least month to month. And trying to track the cost per inch of steel that I am buying from three or four different vendors over a six month period it's incredibly challenging. And then you throw in handle materials. Um, you got to track your labor. Like there were times that I realized that when it was all said and done, I was working for $2 an hour. Um, that's, that's not sustainable. So you need to be able to track both your labor cost and your material cost. Because if you're not doing that, you don't actually know if you're making money or not. Um, I feel like this is a great opportunity for an engineer to, to jump in and talk numbers and algorithms and space stuff. Yeah. It's like the biggest thing is just set yourself up a spreadsheet and start putting in your things. How much, how many hours you have um, for some of my early batches uh, when I was getting ready for blade show, I just uh, tally marked on there profiling one, two, three hours or whatever. And then I kind of tried to put uh, how many belts I used just to get an idea of how many I was actually using for the quantity of knives. And then uh, kind of track that back to the spreadsheet that I kind of filled in uh, what I kind of thought was going in. So. Yeah. And that's one of those things, uh, a two inch kitchen knife eats up a whole lot more belts than one inch outdoor knives. Mm -hmm. Um, so working in batches will help you kind of average out the cost of different patterns. But my kitchen knives, those patterns cost significantly more in production costs than, say, uh, an Echo 5. Mm -hmm. um, so working in batches, but more importantly, realizing that there are certain characteristics about a knife that are going to make it more expensive. Yep. Uh, and I threw this on the end. Um, customer service. Um, first and foremost, and this is something I'm horrible at. I physically have to force myself to constantly improve on communication. Um, Man, when there's an issue, get out in front of it. If you contact your client and tell them that there's an issue and this is what's going on and this is the delay, they are going to be infinitely more understanding than if they have to track you down. And yeah, there's, there's a degree of embarrassment. There's, I mean, 
nobody wants to figuratively and on a phone call in some ways, literally look somebody in the eye and tell them that, Hey, I dropped the ball, but I promise you getting in front of that will work out better for you in the long term. People are very forgiving about issues that you bring to them. And they're very unforgiving about issues that they have to bring to you. Um, that annoying customer that is always asking for updates. That was my least favorite customer. I used to take tell jokes and have no, nightmares about that customer. Until fairly recently, I ordered something and I was so excited about getting it. I knew it wasn't going to be ready for months, but it was awesome. And in my head, I was already imagining how cool it would be to have and use that thing. And that led me to asking for updates up until I realized I was being that annoying customer. But when you get that person, man, remember, they are ignoring you looking for details because they are excited to get your product. Take that as the enormous compliment it is. Have a little patience when you talk to those people. Rather than go to like my knee jerk of, I told you to be ready in six months. Has it been six freaking months? Then clearly it's not ready. And in the back of your mind, remember, hey, he is calling me because he is so incredibly, or she, is so incredibly excited about having what it is I make that they're thinking about it constantly. You can and probably should tell them, hey, look, man, I, I told you it'd be six months. It's only been two months. You got to give me some space. But man, do that remembering that they are excited to have what it is you're making. That is arguably the single best compliment that somebody can give you. So don't lose your temper with somebody that's giving you a compliment. Um, I, I I feel like this is the, the majority of my rants, the, the majority of stuff that I've either wanted to say to the industry at whole or my list of stuff that I wish somebody had, had told me um, other than that. Don't get into it. <laughs> don't be a knife maker. It's deeply rewarding, but also deeply challenging. Yeah. Um, anything you want to throw in? No, I think that's pretty much most of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to touch on something else too. There are very few full-time makers for a reason. For a long time, it was either the very young or was the very or it was the retired because they had an outside income stream. See back to you're not making you're not going to make money at this. Um, man, in a, in a lot of ways, I have had two or three jobs. I worked construction. I did some other things. Um, I was a stay at home dad. Um, which at one point my wife had to point out, Hey, this is what childcare for two kids would cost. 
don't be surprised that this has got to be a side gig. Um, that's the way it is for most people. Um, some people have got a small secondary income that they can build off of. Some people have to have it as a side gig for years, 10, 15, 20 years before they can start moving into a full-time gig. I mean, in some ways I'll say being, being able to say you're full-time is kind of like being able to have a black belt. Like a lot of people see that as the, Hey, you've made it, but really that is just the end of the beginning. Um, you have so much further to go. Um, and so many different knife styles to do. Yeah. And then we come back to the, there's so many knife styles to do and which ones are going to make me money. Because as soon as you move to full time, the question, there's no longer a question. Are you going to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? Yeah, no. That question's done. That's that ship has sailed. You're a knife maker and you got to be able to sell it. Um, so the, don't kill yourself over trying to be full time. And if that's something you come to and move away from and come to and move away from, that is probably what 90% of the people in the industry have done. Um, very few people are full-time knife makers forever. I mean, it's just not, it's just not that industry. So you got to eat, you got to pay your bills, but don't let the money kill the passion. If, if, if you've got to step away from a little while man, step away from a little while, use that as an opportunity to work on sketches, reset your mind, or just realize that's the way this industry works. Yep. I think I, I think that's all I got for tonight. Well, if you want to keep in touch with the podcast, you can keep in touch with us at knifeperspective.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram and find us anywhere you can listen to podcasts. You keep in touch with Dan Eastland, Dogwood Custom Knives on Dogwood Custom Knives on Instagram. You keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com and Cage Daily Knives on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, all of them. So you got all the handles, all of the handles. So most active on Instagram. Hope you guys had a uh, a good. Lots, there's lots of good things to think about there. So uh, check uh, check us out and. Wanna say goodnight, Dan? Good night, Dan. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the 